0: Hi, everybody. Very good to see you. Um, it's so good to be here. I, just before I say anything else, I think I, thanks to the guys leading us tonight. And, and that song, familiar, I guess, to many, but I don't think we've sung it much here. And when, um, when you sing that line, when we sing that line, all his promises, are yes and amen, and God is faithful to all that he's promised. I'm just wondering what promises we connect with in that moment. When you sang that song were there promises of God that came into your mind which you are standing on? And uh, it's not to be uh, kind of unpleasant to anybody who hasn't got that, but I just want to, I think God is really encouraging us, speaking to me quite a lot about promises at the moment. And um, it would be great, wouldn't it, if we naturally had a kind of, reservoir of things, of promises that God has spoken. It's amazing to have prophetic words over us. It's amazing to carry pictures from our past, things that people have said over us. I'm going to say that the promises from the word of God carry even more authority and power than those things. And I want to encourage us to be a people of the promise because he's a God of the promise. He's always faithful. He is always about his business. In fact, uh, Faze just brought me a, a picture of a sense of God uh, continuing to water a garden even though it's not certain what's going on in the garden. He's always about his business. He's always doing good things, even if we're not sure what they are. So part of our declaration when we say, God, you're faithful, is to say, you're always at work. You love me. Your promises are true even though I don't always feel that they're true. And, but then to stand on a specific promise is really precious. Amen? And so uh, if you haven't got a promise or two to hand, then I'd just love to encourage you to to go to your Bibles and maybe find, just Google promises of God or something like that. Um, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. That's the end of Psalm 40, uh, Isaiah 41.10. God says, I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Anybody here need upholding, holding up, sustaining, supporting, you know, in God's victorious right hand? I do. You're all far too polite to put your hand up, but you know what I mean? I'm not asking you, but internally you're going, yeah, I do. My life's pretty rubbish at the moment, so I'm feeling weak or I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. I need help. We're not designed to live alone. The promises of God are there. It's just so good. And it connects a little bit with a message that um, I think God's uh, wanting to bring to us today, which is about believing even more profoundly than we do the stuff that God has revealed about himself, about who he is, about the way that we relate to him, and then about the way that we carry that good news to a wider world. World, which is part of this series about encountering Jesus. I don't know if the title came up, James, but encounters with Jesus. We love this word encounter because it's about experience. Ultimately, it's not so much about just words and just things that we subscribe to mentally and go, "Yeah, that's right." Yeah, we're all talking about that. Encounter is an experience kind of a word. Now, I appreciate we can go overboard on our desire for experience at times, but God is a God to be known, and He's a God for other people to know. So He wants to to take us deeper and further with. Um, some things about him. We'll come to the encounter in a minute. Um, but I have my welcome to others to say, uh, lovely that you're here. If you're new, visiting, great. Momentous uh, week. All kinds of good things going on. Those of us who love our sport, it's a rich time of year. England won a test match. We're pleased about that, even if it was against Ireland. We're looking forward to beating the Aussies 5 0. And um, what else happened? It was the hottest day, more or less. I think, ever in the history of the universe or something. Um, and we all rejoiced on Thursday, if you love heat, and then we're a bit disappointed on Friday because it was 20 degrees colder. Um, but that was amazing. And th- anybody notice we've got a new prime minister? Yeah, that, that happened this week. That's quite significant. Um, and I'm gonna make two comments about that. One, we need to pray for him, for the government, for our leaders, because the Bible says so always. Whoever, whether we agree with them, don't like them, like them, whatever, that's not the point. uh, Two Timothy, one Timothy, somebody will tell me. Uh, Pray for your leaders, always. We need to pray for those in authority. So let's be praying for Boris and uh, the cabinet and all of those, because they have a big responsibility. And I am going to risk a slightly controversial, potentially slightly disrespectful thing. I read it in a local paper, um, so blame the paper. I thought it was quite fun. Said this, for any Americans wondering who Boris Johnson is, he's what would happen if you threw Donald Trump, a bale of hay, a silver spoon, and Roger's thesaurus into a washing machine, <laughs> and then it caught fire. <laughs> I thought that was quite good. I don't really understand it, but it seemed like a good collection of things. <laughs> in, the, in, the, uh, uh, in the same paper, just by way of introduction, uh, I, I read something a bit less cheerful, actually, uh, a couple of pages over. It was the story in local press in Cheltenham, there's a girl who's been up in court again uh, because she's addicted to shoplifting, it turns out, and uh, she was you know, going through the court cycle again. She just goes into shops, nicks stuff, can't help it. My attention was drawn in the light of where we're at tonight to, uh, to this thing that she said. She was quoted as saying this, she said, you know, I don't even want this stuff. Lipstick, nail varnish, earrings, when I see them, I keep thinking that if I take them, they'll just make me feel a bit better, but they never do. I thought that's really poignant, isn't it? It touches on a whole bunch of things there, if we think about it. It touches on desires not being met. It touches on longings that we have, yearnings for but being expressed in the wrong direction. It talks about a brokenness. It talks about an emptiness. It talks about a search for fulfilment. Just looking in the wrong direction. Talks about the false idols of money and stuff that always appear to say that they're going to satisfy us, but actually never really do and they don't fill the hole. Touches on a whole bunch of those different things. So but let's bear that in mind. And the uh, series that we're looking at, this Encounters with Jesus, I have to say, to be honest, that the episode that I've been given tonight to explore with you is not necessarily the most cheerful. Uh, rewind about four months. We're in Easter. We're on Good Friday, in fact. The encounter with Jesus that we're looking at tonight is of a shoplifter. Uh, in fact, he probably did a few things a bit worse than shoplifting because he ended up on a cross. It's one of the thieves uh, in the story um, of Easter. Two of them, actually, uh, and their crimes are pretty serious. Um, but it takes us to the heart, of actually, this passage of what the good news really is. Uh, some profound brokenness there, some profound yearnings and longings. Uh, But Jesus entering into that situation um, um, uh, in in an extraordinary way. And I want to say this. I think one of the things that God wants to reveal to us tonight, to you sitting there right now, whether you've begun a journey with Jesus or whether you haven't, is the depths of his grace, the depths of the grace of God. That's such a familiar word, but such a a rich and um, multi-layered word that I think we just continually need to explore. But God, I believe, wants to really take us further in our understanding, our embracing, our experience of his grace. So uh, the story of the shoplifters on the cross. Uh, Luke 23 is where it happens. I'm going to read some bits of it. Some of the words will come up on the screen. You can find it if you want. Two other men, both criminals, were, were led out with Jesus to be executed. And they came to the place called the skull and they crucified Jesus there along with these criminals, one on the right, one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him and it said, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him as well. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly. We're getting what our our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise Maybe familiar, very familiar to some of us, maybe not less so to others, but uh, extraordinary, not very cheerful little episode, but it says so much. Thieves are people who steal stuff, aren't they, that that isn't theirs, but they act as if it was. Uh, They take what's not rightfully theirs uh, to fulfill some sort of perceived need, some perceived desire. It rarely does, of course. And of course, there's always consequences to that. There are always consequences. Whenever we step outside of, The way that God has set human life up to flourish, which is to say, in relationship with him, as part of his family, connected to him, in relationship, as a loving father, and then working out the DNA of the family, that is how to succeed in life right there. Whenever we step outside of that life, or live outside of that life, there are consequences. We don't always feel them in the moment, but they are always there. Pretty severe consequences for for this guy who'd stepped outside them in a, in a pretty bold and, and brassy way. But, but you, we recognise that, right? In ourselves, there's a bit more distance, there's a bit more hardness, there's a bit more deception, there's a bit more blindness, there's a bit more shame, there's a bit more fear, whatever it is, there are always consequences to, to stepping out. And doing our own thing, we'll call, let's call it rebellion or disobedience, or it's the pride, it's the unbelief that lies beneath all sin. That thing that says, now, I know better, I'm going to do it my way. It creates all of those kinds of things. It's the inheritance, by the way, of Adam, going right back in the garden, whatever you make of the creation story. I'm not commenting on on, on the how there, but it's perfectly clear that the principles for life, God's design uh, for for human beings flourishing, are right there. So this is the inheritance. This thief, us, our rebellion, it's the inheritance of Adam. He's the one who took the one thing that he wasn't supposed to take. He was given all of this to play with in God's playground. And the one thing, The one boundary, he stepped outside of it, took hold of the one thing that wasn't his to take. What happened? Consequences. He lost their intimacy with God. Fear came into the picture. Shame came into the picture. So here's what's happened to these two thieves on the cross, these two ultimate shoplifters. They're relentless taking for themselves, abusing the gift that God has given them, and they end up here. And it's one of the great ironies, isn't it, of the Easter story, that those who live their lives by taking from others, are now having their lives taken from them by force. And the one in the middle, who has all the force in the universe, who has taken nothing but given everything, now gives himself and hangs there, willingly, out of love, sacrificing himself for the sins and the takers of the world. That's the gospel, isn't it, right there? But it's interesting, isn't it? Here we have this little story, two thieves... People see different things differently. The same two people see the same thing differently. There's a few little, um, what do you call those things? Optical illusions. I just Google a few of those things. I'm not going to let you look at them for long, OK? Because I know what you're like. You'll get distracted. And you know, can you see both things going on at the same time? Apparently, if you can see both things going on at the same time, within a microsecond, you're you know, a genius, and you're one in a million, and all that kind of thing. And you're all geniuses. You don't need to you know, prove it. But people see different look at the same thing and see 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 it differently. Okay, you better take that away or they'll get distracted. The first guy looks at Jesus and he can't see beyond himself. We get that, right? It's the hardness of of self interest, self absorption, the inheritance of the taker. Paraphrasing what he says, he says, "I don't care." If you're the son of God or not, I don't care who you call yourself. I don't care what it says above your, your cross right there. But if you can do something for me, they say that you're powerful. It doesn't look like it to me. If you can do something for me, then you, I'll, I'll take any old king. As long as you get me out of this mess. It's the kind of dial-up God, SOS, emergency service. I don't really care who you are, God, but if you can sort me out... Then, then that's good with me. If you can bail me out of this rubbish job, if you can bail me out of my financial circumstances, if you can bail me out of this uh, dismal uh, kind of relationship that I'm in, uh, this sickness that I've got, well, great. But the way that that then plays out in, in, in our world is, well, God hasn't done that for me, so he's not powerful. Your God, you call yourselves Christians, your God's not powerful. He hasn't helped me. He hasn't stopped this, he hasn't stopped that, he hasn't solved world poverty, he hasn't rid the world of cancer yet, so I, I've, I'm not going to have anything to do with your God, because he's not helped me. It's all about me. Angry, helpless, hopeless, no spirit of brokenness at all, no awareness or antennae up for his own sense of self and, and where things have gone wrong in, inside. No humility. Jesus, for this guy, is not a king to be followed, he's just a power to be used. And we're probably sitting in the room going, well, that's not me. I'm not that person. Well, let's just be a little bit careful about the last bit. Jesus just being a power to be used for me. is you know, the, the emergency service, SOS, Jesus, call him up because we need help, right? Of course he helps. Of course he's unbelievably gracious. But uh, Jesus doesn't revolve around us. Second guy, second thief, uh, it seems he started actually in a similar place. If you read the other accounts, Matthew and Mark, they talk about this guy, both, both criminals joining in with the, the insulting uh, business. He's clearly every bit as broken as, as the other guy who messed up and he's screwed up his life. By the way, um, tradition calls this guy Dismas. I don't know why they come across the name, but somebody uh, does in some tradition. It turns out in Catholic uh, branch of thinking, he's the patron saint of two things. Not surprisingly, Dismas becomes the patron saint of condemned prisoners. That kind of makes sense. He's also the patron saint of funeral directors. Just thought you'd want to know that. Our friendly funeral director, George, is not here today. But next time you see him, I'll ask if he, you know. No, don't, actually. But this guy, the second, the second thief, he's, he's had his eyes open. Somehow, something, goes, something happens on the cross, right? And let's look at this text. A few things happen. First, he dares to go against the flow, doesn't he? He stands up against this idea of, if your God's so powerful, why did this happen? Why didn't that happen? Get us out of this mess. He's not drawn into that. Again, I think I'd want to urge, we, we, we mustn't be drawn into that kind of deceptive argument. He fears God not really told what that means. Fear of God is such a, a rich and complex thing. But there's something about him in this moment, isn't there, that postures himself in submission to the Jesus hanging next to him, that has enough about him to recognize, I need to, be, I, I need to position myself in humility, not in judgment, not in control, not in demanding. That's something of the, the fear of God. There's something he had enough belief about that not to take the arrogant kind of judgmental view. He admits his wrong. He no longer tries to hide it, his guilt, his shame, and so on. He says, don't you fear God? We're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this guy's done nothing wrong. So he's accepting responsibility. He's accepting the consequences of of his position. He's embracing this truth. He deserves nothing. He's not entitled to anything. This is the place, friends, of raw honesty and humility. And all genuine confession begins there, doesn't it? When we just find that place and we allow the Holy Spirit to get us to that place where we're just honest, just raw honesty, a raw kind of, yeah, this is, this is the mess, this is me, this is the core of who I am. Not a lot can happen. God can't reuse us, can't do much with us until we get to that kind of a place, our place of recognizing need, actually, that Jesus is not the dial-up service, 999, that I call to serve me. He's the king who calls us to serve him. So that's just a reminder of the story, I guess, and, and then we come to these uh, remarkable last words, th- these famous last words, and there's a bunch of famous last words in history. I don't know what your famous last words are, as googling as you do, just to give you a giggle. Oscar Wilde's last words, he's in hospital, and apparently he says uh, from his hospital bed, um, this wallpaper is horrendous, either it goes or I do. <laughs> and he died. <laughs> I, quite, I quite like that. There's an American soldier in, in the American Civil War, George Sed- uh, General Sedgwick. He, I love his last words. Great. His famous last words, I hope they're true. They couldn't hit an elephant at this... Di- <laughs> and he died. Famous last words of the second thief. They're a, they're a prayer, aren't they? They're, they're as simple, and honest, as straightforward, about as straightforward a prayer as it can get. Jesus, and by the way, he's the only person recorded in the scriptures who calls Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Far from being a, a, the powerless Jewish teacher that most people seem to think that you are, weak and, uh, and, and dying on this cross, I recognize in you something completely different. I recognize that the, the love of heaven being expressed powerfully in this moment, in who you are, a moment that you have chosen. He wouldn't have understood everything that was going on there, but he recognizes something completely different than the world recognized in that moment. And one day every knee will bow, every, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess the same thing that this guy confessed in that moment. So famous last words, and Jesus replies, of course, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, no gap. And I'm pretty convinced, friends, that in this little exchange, uh, there lies something that we, that we sort of miss or we miss the depths of, uh, where I started, that God wants us to, to take us further in this journey of understanding his extraordinary grace. I've not said anything that you don't know, but there are some things here for us to experience more that we need. I was with somebody this week who is about to come into a serious amount of money and it's um, an unusual conversation, unearned by them, Uh, This person is rather troubled by it, is rather troubled by the scale of it, and what they're going to do with it, and how to handle it, and it's become a little bit of a source of anxiety and confusion. Nice problem to have, you might be thinking, uh, as I was thinking in the middle of this conversation, and they're they're not denying it's not a nice problem, but it was a bit of a problem. I'd happily have more problems like that. But it reminded me, I think, uh, of a problem that this story right now draws attention to, and it's this. I think we struggle to overcome the problem of grace. There is a problem with grace that we have, and we can get stuck on it. And it turns out that the problem of grace is exactly the same thing as the beauty and majesty and glory of grace. And it's this. It's free. It's free. It doesn't cost us anything. Friends, I believe that God is, is kind of reminding and just giving us a bit of a nudge here. This is a problem for us. That it's free. It doesn't cost us anything. Can we understand what's happening here on the cross? These crosses. A thief is asking for a gift. And he's given it. Just like that. Forgiveness given just like that, his, his rebellious, broken past, every hurt that he's ever caused to himself and others, completely wiped clean, eternal life granted in that moment, shame lifted, being in the presence of God with every other member of God's family forever. Today, says Jesus, no delay, no ifs, no buts, today you'll be what? With me, with God, in his kingdom, in glory. This taker receives something from the giver, which wasn't rightfully his, but it now belongs to him. Could he have done anything in this moment to deserve it? No. Pretty clear. This is the most clear example of this in in all of the scriptures, in my view. Did he do anything to earn it? No. Was it possible for this thief to steal it from Jesus? No. Did it cost him anything at all? No. One step further, crucially... Could he now do anything to pay Jesus back for it? No. See, the scandal of grace, grace is so unfair. We recognise that, don't we? Grace is so unfair, in a good way. It runs so much deeper than we embrace. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. So under the old covenant law, we're slaves. We're we're, we're under the the kind of the domination of standards that we can never meet. We can't reach up to them. Uh, We are judged based on our performance. Have we measured up or not? That's under the old covenant, the law. Under grace, we're relieved of all of that. We're set free from all of that. We're no longer slaves to all of that. We're not judged by our own performance. We're now judged and assessed by what? By Jesus' performance. His performance. It's like somebody said, take a diary, Tim. Take your diary. I, I didn't never really kept a diary, but imagine. Imagine the diary of your life, right? Every thought you've ever thought, every lurking bit of grimness in uh, your inner world, all that stuff that you know about, but you pr- hope that nobody else does. I mean, there's some good stuff in there too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not insulting you, but we've all got stuff, right? So the diary of your life, all your thoughts and your, all of that stuff, there it is. And we turn it over page after page after page. There it is the whole life up to this point in your life, all of it warts and all, and you turn to the front to see whose diary this is, and it says, Jesus Christ. Then you take another diary. This diary is full of beautiful, uh, kind expressions and actions and words, attitudes that are pure and lovely, extraordinary generosity and, and acts of courage and heroism, and you turn to the front of that one. And just to find out who, whose diary that is. And it says um, Nick Stott, Caroline Brecken, Tim Grew, your name. That's what happened. David illustrated it beautifully in, a, in, a, in an all age family slot this morning. He had a, a person representing Jesus in a, in a white garment and, and this thief in a black garment, and he simply swapped the garments over. It's the divine exchange that happened at Calvary. But friends, we, we don't quite believe it, I think, or not to the depth that we could. It's so dramatic. It is like moving from death to life. The Bible is full of language, as dramatic as that. Why? Because it's true. There is, it has to be that dramatic. There has to be a dying in order for there to be a life. Jesus, For us to live, Jesus has to die. Actually, we have to die. To our past, We take on his death in order to take on his life. That's why we love baptisms, isn't it? There's a, there's a symbolic dying and rising. There's a brilliant church in Australia where they baptise people in a coffin. It's brilliant. It's a bit gruesome, but it's a brilliant bit of theology. It's as dramatic as that. But we're not sure about it, in my experience. Really? What? How? Sure? That much grace, that much depth to it? Why do we struggle? Back to my point. Because we didn't pay anything for it. We didn't pay anything for it. In order to get free like that, that kind of freedom, if you had to sweat for two or three years and get your sort of proverbial spade out and get a sweat on and you know work at it and really try hard and persevere and the sweat beads of sweat fall down. And then you get it, there's something be something a bit more sort of okay about that, because we, we'd feel that we've done something. I washed my car yesterday. I, I cleaned my car, rather. It took me ages, all the holiday muck and the kids' rubbish and stuff, and hoover, hoover. Actually, it was really satisfying, if I'm really honest. I worked pretty hard. It took me a long time. Hill's wondering what on earth I was doing for three or four hours, obsessive, need to be released from my perfectionist tendency, um, and it was quite satisfying, almost more satisfying than if a magic wand had been waved and the car was suddenly clean, because it cost me something. My hard work resulted in a clean car. There was some sense of achievement and reward. No amount of hard work on my part or yours can create a clean heart. The clean heart that we have if we've given ourselves to Jesus, which he has given us because he's done all the hard work. He's paid all the cost. It cost us nothing and we struggle with that. Cost him everything. Ask him if it's real. Ask him if it felt real. Oh, yeah. But well, that's the whole point. It's grace. Law is so ingrained in us, isn't it? Don't you think? Religion is so ingrained. Contract is so ingrained. I get something, I give something, I, sorry, I, get, I give something to get something. I pay three pounds, I get my ice cream. I work for my qualifications, I get my job. I put my hours in, I draw a salary. I smile at you and say something nice, and you like me. <laughs> I get something, I, I give something, I get something back in return. The world operates like that, and most of that is absolutely fine. It's how God has set up the world. Of course it is. It's just that it doesn't work with this. It doesn't work. We can't give something. What could the thief give? Nada. But he got everything. What could he pay back? Nother. Still got it. I just think this is utterly, utterly extraordinary. And, and God needs to take us on a deeper journey with this. He so wants us to get grace. You know, when Jesus w- was walking uh, around Galilee, he never had an organized campaign against slavery. He never had organized some sort of campaign against uh, different types of oppression or, or injustice or poverty, as opposed as he was to all of those things, of course, and more he had one organized campaign. Do you know what it was against? Religion. It was against the burden of rules and religiosity. Hear him, for example, Matthew 11. You Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you bind up heavy burdens and you make people feel guilty, I'm paraphrasing a bit, because they're not living up to the standard. They're not measuring up to to the rules. And you're not doing anything to make that burden lighter. So listen, people, come to me. And I'll give you rest. Come to me if you're weary and you're heavy laden with all that stuff. You're living under the yoke of the law, and I'll give you rest. That's what that passage is about, by the way. It's about not being burdened by having to live up to the law and regulations and rules and stuff. Why? Because God gives a free gift. Now, there may be some kinds of gifts that aren't really gifts at all. Political lobbyists give gifts, whatever. Heads of state give gifts. What they really want is something in return, right? What sort of God would it be who gave a free gift of grace, but then what he demanded back from you was a life of sacrifice and dedication and duty and responsibility and living up to, some, to rules? That would not be a free gift. And that is not the God that we know and serve. That's not him. Feel bad for Jesus. He died on the cross for you and now you've got to pay him back by being good. Truth is, we quite like the idea of that. That's why this is difficult for us. The whole, we want to pay something because we're used to it, makes us feel as if we've contributed in some measure. We quite like the rules, if we're really honest. We quite like the idea of religion. It works quite well. We quite like the idea of, well, I'm a 7 out of 10 kind of a guy, and you're actually a 5 out of 10 kind of a girl, so I'm better than you. Religion works that way. and It enables us to make all kinds of crass comparisons. We're, we're kind of complicit in it. We know how it works. The relationship on offer is entirely different. It just doesn't work like that. It's a true freedom. It is, an, it is an extraordinary freedom from that. Let me say this very clearly the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, everything that flows to us because of all that is a free gift. And listen carefully we owe God nothing. We owe God nothing. A former generation would have a way of saying thank you that went much obliged, much obliged, much obliged. Have you heard that expression? This is not that. We are not obliged. There isn't an obligation. That's the point of grace. That is how radical it is. We don't owe God anything. We are not much obliged. We may be saved by grace and we all subscribe to that. But if we then live by works effectively, I need to do this. I need to do it. I've got to pay God back by this. I owe him this. I've, I have to do that. I have to attend church. I've got to read my Bible. I must pray. I must do this. I must do that. I should do that. Then we've not got grace, my friends, because we're not free. The beauty of grace is the problem of grace. It doesn't cost us anything. And I'm going to be honest and say that one of my own reflections in in the course of the last few years is that I I so... See that uh, I've been on this journey with it, and I wish that I'd started that journey earlier. I think there's always a journey to go on, of course, there is, but it's as if there's this great big kind of barrel, and it still contains things that are clinging onto the side of the barrel bits of religiosity, bits of that. If you've heard me talk before, bits of the to change the image, the the religious parrot that sits on my shoulder and and, and says, Do this, do that. You you haven't, you're not quite good enough, Tim. You haven't quite arrived. You haven't quite, you know, you're not quite measuring up. Five out of ten today. That's like the stuff that clings to the side of a barrel That is that God wants to, to completely scoop out and, and, and ditch all that religious stuff and just continue to fill it with the pure water of his grace and his love. It's that radical. and I can tell by the, the, the kind of stunned silence. You're getting a fresh sense of how radical this is. And then the implications of it. We must go further. There's no condemnation, Paul says, for those in Christ Jesus. Not there's no condemnation for those who are good in Christ Jesus. No, there's no condemnation for anybody who, like the thief, has just gone, remember me, or the equivalent, however you said it. It's a gift. So, who are the most free people in the world? I'm coming to, I'm coming to, to land. Who are the most free people in the world? They're the ones who most get grace. Who most get grace their need of grace. That's the starting point of the thief, remember? A complete, raw honesty and humility about the state of his own heart, no, no, no hiding place. If we, don't, if we don't start there, we won't get anything. So they're the most free people. They most get grace. They most get their need of grace. They most receive, the ones who most receive God's gift of grace and then live in the light of it. Let's just deal really quickly. Tim, are you saying it doesn't matter what we do? I don't pay God back. I don't owe God anything, really? Can I do anything? Well, that's the, the argument that Paul deals with in, in the letter to the Galatians and elsewhere. That's a nonsense, isn't it? Because if we get grace, is that going to be our reaction? <laughs> thanks is different from much obliged. We're not much obliged, but the thanks bit, as the penny drops, as, we, as, we, as this truth and reality sinks in, who is going to stop us from wanting to express that? in a life of dedication and service and and joyful devotion. The most free people, they're the ones who most get grace, and the most free people, they are the ones who are most devoted, most committed, most all out, most all in, most wholehearted, most generous, most non-judgmental, by the way, most unreligious, most non-comparing, most loving, most free, super free to be themselves, Freed from obligation, freed from judgment. Takers who become receivers, who become givers in their turn, and not because they have to. Not because they need somehow to pay God back. Not because they need to impress him or anybody else. Get in the good books of the pastor who says, you know, give your money, give your time, give your whatever. No, don't hear any of that from me. Through gratitude, the sheer delight of having been loved that deeply and set free that fully. Why would I ever go back to something as as lower level as as the standard of the law? No comparison. Final little story. I just remembered it as I was walking in this morning. I'm old enough to remember a book and a film, I think it was, by a woman called Joy Adamson, uh, and she raised lion cubs in Africa. Ever heard of this? It's called Born Free the book and the film called Born Free, Joy Adamson, amazing stuff, I remember it, and I was thinking, we're not born free, the lions might be, we're not, we are not, every human being is not born free, we're born into the inheritance of the taker, Adam, we're born into that inheritance, we're born unfree, we need to be set free, ironically, we are Adam's son, Joy Adamson, we are Adam's sons and daughters with that inheritance, born into captivity, the captivity of self-centeredness. But the second Adam, that's Jesus, he died for us so that we could die to that captivity, so that we could be born again to live free. We could be reborn, born again to be free. And God wants to take us all on that journey. And of course, friends, by, being, by, by going deeper in that grace, by understanding it more fully, by living it out more fruitfully, the world gets to see a freedom that it yet doesn't know. Let's stand together. So a bit of a pause, a bit of silence. The band will come and play quietly. I generally encourage us to close our eyes. It just seems to shut out a few of the distractions because this, above all, is a moment for you and the Lord. I guess some messages sort of lead towards a responsive activity. I need to do something. This is not one of those, is it? This is a. Lord, will you help me to believe something and then to experience something in a more deep way? That, that will then result in some doing and the way that we live. But This is so fundamental. I started at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Jesus, remember me today. Today, you get to be with me forever. So Father, we're in some respect lost for words. That doesn't really matter because this isn't about words. But we thank you for grace. We thank you for the riches of grace. Grace we thank you for the quality of freedom that you want us to live in. Whatever the extent of the freedom that we have discovered and embraced to this point, Father, we're asking for all of us that you'd take us further, that you'd release us into a greater freedom yet. Whether that is with sudden breakthroughs As you lift off something, as I believe God wants to do tonight, as you lift off shame, as you lift off bonds that hold us and keep us captive, or whether it's gradually over the course of of weeks and months, Father, would you take us deeper into all that you have promised for us, all that you have purposed us to enjoy. I'm guessing it must make you sad, Father, when you see the limitations that we operate with when we allow for the stuff in the barrel to stay clinging to it, when we listen to the voice of achievement and law and rules and choose to go with it. Father, we release us. Would you do a great releasing job tonight, releasing us from the things that hold us, lead us into a greater freedom, a greater sense of who you've made us to be and what you've made us for more, God, of depth of grace, we pray in Jesus' name. We say, come, Holy Spirit, and do what you love to do. Do what you alone can do. God, we just, we just take our hands off any attempt to make any of this happen. Release us, God, from, from the striving. Release us from the, the need to achieve. Release us from the notions that we can impress you or anybody else. Free us, God, free us, free us, free us.